Sincerity is no substitute. Based there on the reading that you've heard, we've done John chapter 5, verses 31 to 47. Let me begin by observing that one of the many ways in which our nation has changed over the years is in the way biblical morality has been erased from our culture. Not that it was ever perfect, but I think most of us of a certain age know that there was a time, at least within our lifetimes, when most people, even if it was just on the surface, lived according to the basic standards, and they were very basic, of biblical morality. In former times, God's law was accepted by large numbers of our people as the only source of truth. Not by everyone, but by a majority. And Jesus Christ was accepted as the Son of God and Savior of the world. In our day, that is no longer true. Because many, if not most, of our leaders and public figures, either political or religious, have accepted at least one, probably many more, false ideas. The idea that all religions... All worldviews are basically the same and that one path to God is as valid and as good as any other. There are many people today, however, who sincerely want to know what is the right path in life or what is the really true religion. Because no matter what people say, everyone realizes on some level that as a matter of logic, all religions cannot be true at the same time and on the same things. If for no other reason that, in many cases, varying religions claim dramatically different and even contradictory things to be true. I say that even people who might deny it understand this on some level because, you know, if I tell you that the distance and time down to Columbia is about 90 miles and 90 minutes or something like that. And in fact, the distance is 150 miles and it takes two hours. Both of those can't be true. One of them is not correct. It's the same thing in terms of religion and morality. Either murder and unlawful killing are wrong or there's nothing wrong with them. These are two just fine examples. Many people despair of knowing which religion or path in life is true just because there are so many beliefs available to them today. But now in our scripture passage, (coughs) the Lord himself indicates the way out of this kind of confusion. And he gives a simple test by which any religion can be judged either to be true or false. Some years ago, A man named William White was the editor of a small newspaper, and as editor, he received many articles from aspiring would-be writers. And he ended up sending most of these articles back to the authors with rejection notices, and in most cases, that was the end of it. However, on one occasion, he received an angry reply from one very disappointed writer, a woman who wrote this. She said, Sir... You sent back a story of mine that I know that you never read because as a test, I pasted together pages 19 to 20 and the manuscript came back with those pages still stuck together and I know that you're a fraud and that you turned down articles without ever having read them. 
Well, the editor, Mr. White, sent a brief reply to that woman in which he said, Dear Madam, at breakfast when I crack open a poached egg, I don't have to eat it all to determine if it is bad. So in the same way, we don't have to examine every doctrine of every religion to know whether it's a true or false one. See, if it denies the deity or humanity of Christ, if it denies his virgin birth, his perfect life, his atoning death, his physical resurrection, or his final advent, it is a bad egg, so to speak, and it must be rejected as false. So in closing out our study in John chapter 5, I want to draw your attention, particularly to these verses 41 through 46 today, and I'm going to read this particular passage from the New King James Version. Jesus says, I do not receive honor from men, but I know you, that you do not have the love of God in you. He's speaking to the Pharisees, the leaders of the Jews. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. We'll talk about what that means in a little bit. How can you believe, verse 44, how can you believe who receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes from the only God? Do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? And with that then, Jesus concludes his defense of his divine mission. He appeals to the consciences of his enemies, who on that day were the Pharisees the leaders of the Jews. And that appeal still stands today in our time to any and all who reject and deny the truth of who Jesus was and is. And so then, I want you to consider the following three things. First of all, let's think about the reason why many people do not accept the truth of God's law word. The reason why. There are more than, there are reasons why, I guess I should say. In verse 40, Jesus declares to the Jews, you are not willing to come to me that you might have, that you could have life. Other translations have it, you refuse or you have no desire to come to me. And so we have the reason why all other religions are false. The reason why all those who reject Christ cannot claim eternal life is because they refuse to come to him. Notice that Jesus doesn't say, they're unwilling to acknowledge him as a great and good man. Or he does not say that such people refuse to believe that the Christian faith is one of many ways to God. No, he declares that he is the only way to God and his way is the only true way. And if we are unwilling to come to him on those terms, we are refusing to come. Now, there are people in the world who have the idea that what may well keep them from life eternal are their sins. And they believe that their ticket to either heaven or hell is what kind of life a person has led. And that at the end, when we stand before the dread judgment seat of God, he will get out the book, so to speak, and he'll run down the list. And of the sins and bad life side totals, if it totals more than the good life side, well, then it's off to the devil for that person. But our Lord Jesus tells us something quite different, doesn't he? Look again at what he says or what he's telling the Pharisees here. 
I'm not going to read it all, but just consider what he said. Those men were the masters of living, or at least they thought they were, living their lives in accord with every jot and tittle of their version of the law. And it is their refusal, their unwillingness to come to him that has shut the door to life against them and against everyone else like them. You see, friends, there is no sin that we commit that cannot be forgiven. All of us sin, whether outwardly or inwardly, whether it be the Christian or the atheist or the Hindu or the Muslim, we all have a sin problem. But what we all do not have is a true solution to that problem. And the reason that some have the solution and others do not is that those who don't, they are unwilling. They are refusing to come to Christ. In Romans 3 and Psalm 53, the Older Testament reading we heard today, we are told that we're born with that unwillingness in our hearts and all people in every age of history. Well, they try desperately to shift the blame for their unwillingness from themselves. Everyone else in the world is to blame for their sinfulness of their lives except for themselves. That's their attitude. And certainly we today live in an age of blame shifters and victims where fewer and fewer people are willing to accept the responsibility for who and what they are and what they have made of their lives. They blame their parents. They blame the environment. They blame the government. They blame hypocritical church leaders. The list goes on and on. Jesus warns us that the day will come when all will stand before him And after all the excuses and pleas have been heard, he will say to them what he said to the Pharisees, to those who are not elect and his people. Let's be careful to add that. Not everybody's going to hear this from Christ. You have refused to come to me out of your own unwillingness that you might have eternal life. The unconverted, they are what they are because they at some fundamental level of their being refuse to to become otherwise than unconverted. Back in John chapter 3, verse 19, we read that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light. So that's the first thing. But now the second point that we want to gain from this passage is that one of the principal reasons why people are not willing to come to Christ for eternal life. We've talked about reasons. There's one principal reason. Notice what he tells them in verse 44. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Another translation has it this way. No wonder you can't believe, for you gladly honor each other, but you don't care about the honor that comes from the one who is God alone. Those men were not being honest in their religion. And with all of their apparent desire to hear and learn, they really cared more about pleasing men than in pleasing God. And in that state of mind, they are never likely to come to Christ. So there is here an important principle that deserves our special attention. True faith does not merely depend on the state of a person's knowledge, but on the state of their heart. The Pharisees are good examples of that. Those men knew the writings of Moses and Pharaoh, at least on a major level they did. But because of the disposition of their hearts, 
for all of their learning and knowledge, they would not see the truth of what Moses and Pharaoh, excuse me, Moses, not Moses and Pharaoh, Moses and the prophets were writing about. See, a person may have their mind convinced and their conscience may be pierced, but as long as there is anything in life that they secretly love more than God, there will be no true faith. And that state of mind is natural to all of us as humans. We are born preferring our ways over God's ways. And there are many sincere people who try very hard to believe the right doctrines and attend all the worship services, and yet they're still not convinced believers. Somebody used this analogy. It's like a little child sitting on the lid of their toy box wanting to get it open but not realizing that it's their own weight that keeps it shut. See, we all need to ask ourselves if the foremost priority of our lives is the praise and glory of God. Am I honest with God about who He is in my life? Am I sincere in my commitment to His law word and to His authority over my life? Do I really desire the praise of God above all? You know, there's that one famous question from the Westminster Shorter Catechism that everybody seems to know. Question one and answer, what is the chief end of man? And that question uh, reflects the truth of what Jesus is saying here. Man's chief end, his, his calling in life in which everything else must be subordinate, is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. But the Pharisees would not glorify God. They had convinced themselves they were doing that, but Jesus showed them it was nothing more than pride. He said in verse 43, and I'm reading from a different translation, For I have come to you in my Father's name, and you have rejected me. Yet if others come in their name, their own name, you gladly welcome them. So I asked the question when I read that a moment ago, what, what's that all about? What, what is he talking about? People coming in their own name, and, and they gladly welcome them. See, he's talking about the number of false messiahs who arose during that generation, those days. Now, he referred to this, too, in the Olivet Discourse. Many of us in this room are very familiar with what Jesus says in Matthew 24 and Mark 13. And one of the things he says that in that last day, that last age in which they were living, false prophets would arise. And that's what he's referring to here in John 5.43. Um, one of the many uh, things these false teachers had in common was that they would generally seek to play up to the leaders of the people. And in return, the Pharisees would, for a little while at least, pay them some sort of lip service. But when the real Messiah came and he does not puff them up in their pride, they will not receive him. It is their own glory they are most concerned for, not God's. Now, here I want to pause for a moment and I want to ask you to do something for me. Those listening by means of audio, won't, unless you happen to have access to the uh, red Trinity hymnal, as we call it, You'll just have to listen along as we do this here. But since we were using the Red Trinity hymnal today, um, I'm asking if you would take that out, if you have access to it there, and turn to hymn to, uh, excuse me, 457, hymn number 457. Now, it's a, it's a familiar hymn to most of us, and those listening by audio will perhaps know it. Uh, Come thou fount of every blessing. Now, if you look down at the bottom right-hand side of that page, the, the tune that most of us know for this hymn is the tune written by Asahel Nettleton. Now, I'm pointing this out because you need to know something about Asahel Nettleton. 
He was a great Calvinistic preacher of the 19th century who was used greatly by God in bringing real, true revival and reformation to the northeastern part of these United States back in the 1820s. He's noteworthy not only because of that, but especially because he stood in staunch biblical opposition to the phony revivalism of men like Charles Finney and the Methodists who were promoting rank emotionalism and decisionism over genuine biblical conversion. Nettleton said, no, we will not go down that path and they should stop doing that. But the point I want to make to you is that someone asked Nettleton once what he considered to be the best safeguard against spiritual pride. And this is what he said. He said, I know of nothing better than to keep my eye on my own great sinfulness. See, people who prefer their own glory to God's glory rarely, if ever, cast a glance at their own sinfulness. They blind themselves to their pride and their self-centeredness. But then thirdly, and finally today, note how Jesus refers to Moses in the writings of the Older Testament. He tells the Jews in verse 46 and 7, For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Now, this is the third and final point, but there are two sub-points to this one. I don't want you to get too confused by that. Let, let's note, first of all, that it's obvious that Jesus believed that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. Why would we need to point that out? I say that because, unfortunately, in our time, and it predates our time, but there are many churches and denominations and pastors who deny that Moses ever wrote anything, least of all the books of Genesis through Deuteronomy, and some of them even deny that there ever was a real person named Moses at all. Now, I'm not going to get into all the reasons why they have these denials. Besides, if you've understood what Jesus has said here, you already know why such people make those kind of claims. But the most important thing for us to know is that Jesus believed the truth about Moses and what he wrote. And we have his words here to prove it. And that ought to settle it for us. But then secondly... Note the fact that Jesus says that Moses wrote about him. Just as there are those today who deny Moses wrote anything in the Bible, there are those who claim that even if Moses did write the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, he did not write about Christ and the church. Jesus plainly says that Moses and the scriptures, and that means what we call the Older Testament, all of those were in truth written about him. Those writings were given as pointers to the time in which the Christ would come and proclaim the kingdom of God. This is the age in which we live. This is what we would associate with Advent, Christmas time. You know, most of our misguided evangelicals today, and they have been for a long time, are all hyped up and focused on the final Advent, the second coming, of which we have no idea when that will be. They think they know. But the real important thing in terms of biblical history is the first advent, the dawning of the kingdom, the closing out of the Older Testament, the coming of the new covenant. And that is what his ministry was all about. And that is what the signs and miracles that he did testified to. But more importantly, that is what all the scriptures testified. Now, they, we get another hint of this, another story about this. 
I'm not going to ask you to turn to it, but if you look up in Luke 24, there's the famous story of the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And this is after the resurrection, but before the ascension of Jesus. And he appears to them on that road and goes walking along with them, and they don't know who he is at first. But then they go to a place, and they sit down, and they break bread together, and they realize who he is. And it says, once they realized that, they realized it was the Christ. That beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he testified how all of the scriptures testified about him. This is what the Bible is all about. The proclamation of the coming of the kingdom in Christ Jesus. But yet the Pharisees and their followers were too blind even in all of their supposed insight to see it. They were trusting in their knowledge about the scriptures to save them rather than the author of the scriptures. They were trusting in their supposed blood and racial kinship with Moses and Abraham rather than in the God those men were trusting and believing. Now I realize that in our day, a day of pluralism and what's come to be called wokeism and what we used to call multiculturalism, it's not politically correct to assert the superiority of one religion over another one, of one way of life over another. Many people today believe that it's sincerity of heart that is the most important factor in religion, not content, not doctrine. It doesn't matter, they say, what you believe about God or Jesus. You have your religion, I have mine. What matters is that we be sincere in our beliefs. My friends, sincerity is important, but equally, if not more so, is having the truth and correct beliefs. Wrong beliefs can lead to disaster in life. I mean, if you get critically ill and think you don't need any kind of medical help at all, uh, you may die. You know, it, it doesn't matter how sincere you may be in that belief. And likewise, wrong belief about God and religion can lead to spiritual and personal disaster. So always remember that sincerity is no substitute for the truth. And that truth about who Christ is, that's the ultimate test of any way of life and all religions. Let us pray.